Jenny gave me that permission to be fearless, and then I just passed it along to everybody else that came aboard. Early on, I realized the only way to make this movie is as fearlessly as he lived his life and made his music. You're listening to Skip Intro with me, Krista Smith. Anyone who was anywhere in 2018 would have been unable to avoid the buzz around Bradley Cooper's directorial debut, A Star is Born. And for good reason. It was an inventive reimagining of the classic Hollywood tale, centered around an incredible performance from Lady Gaga and Bradley himself, who stars opposite her. Although A Star is Born was the first time the world got to appreciate Bradley as a director, the film received eight nominations, including Best Actor, Best Actress, Best Picture, and ended up winning Best Original Song for Shallow. His talent as an actor has long been established. Starting off in the comedy space with movies like The Hangover Trilogy and starring roles in acclaimed films like Silver Linings Playbook, American Sniper, and Nightmare Alley. Today, Bradley is here to talk about Maestro, in which he portrays the conductor and composer Leonard Bernstein. Bradley wrote, directed, and produced the film. It's been a labor of love for the past six years, and it's finally come to fruition. And it does not disappoint. I can't wait to finally take you all behind the scenes. Bradley Cooper, I am so excited to talk to you. I saw this film. I got to talk to Carrie a couple days ago. Every time I see this movie, I get more from it and I get more emotion from it. I think it's a masterpiece. I love it. I love it. I love the giant scenes, but yet they're so intimate. It's just it's incredible work. Wow. Well, I know you don't lie, so thank you. <laughs> I don't lie. <laughs> you know enough about me for that that I don't lie. I really I really was so moved by this. I really just want to kind of start at the beginning because why Lenny? I mean, I know you wanted to be a conductor when you were little and all that, but Lenny, it's a giant thing. It's not just playing a conductor. It's playing the maestro. I think it was a situation where Lenny found me in some ways because the impetus was conducting. And then before I knew it, I was enraptured by this spirit of this man who clearly brought shockwaves through culture and music and politics and just civilization while he was on this earth and after, and then all the way up to me. But he found me and us, I think all of us who, who participate, including Carrie, he and his story. We thought, meaning originally Josh Singer and I, thought the most compelling, provocative avenue is this relationship between he and his wife, Felicia Montalegre Cohn Bernstein, uh, who Carrie Mulligan plays. That really was the thing that locked into me, that put its sort of fish hooks into me and gave me the energy and the wherewithal to think that that was something that I could explore hopefully thoroughly enough that you as a viewer would connect to it and be moved and hopefully healed, which is the whole point of filmmaking, really, for me. I know that this originally, Steven Spielberg had this, and, you know, he had seen A Star is Born, and it was like, oh, no, this is Bradley Cooper needs to direct this. So when you say that Lenny found you, I know that there was tons of research on him, right? Biographies and Library of Congress, the letters, and obviously just his music. Do you remember the moment when you knew it was going to be about Felicia and Lenny and not a kind of traditional biopic, although I feel like I know more about Leonard Bernstein from this film than I would have from a biopic. I mean, I, I agree with you. 
I mean, that was the point of the end of the film of showing, well, there was two things. The main thing was for the audience to learn, because my hunch is they won't have known that prior to and during the viewing of the film that all of this music they've been listening to, or 90% of it, is composed by Leonard Bernstein. So that last credit, music by Leonard Bernstein, and you're seeing him conduct. To me, that's the most moving part of the movie. Mm -hmm. And it is uh, also the, an opportunity, hopefully, for those who, like me, knew him, knew of the iconic image and the sort of very brushstroke bullet points about who he was, then are watching this, the same iconic person, feeling like they know him now at the end of the film, that they have a connection. Like, oh, I I understand this person. That That's the other goal. So yeah, so in many ways, I do believe that it, it is the most personal way to unveil and un and reveal this character rather than a traditional biopic but early on i think one of the first things that i saw was the american masters documentary on lenny i think it was like one of the first you know as i opened up the door to the cavernous <laughs> this you know labyrinthian space of primary source material on leonard bernstein one of the first things i picked up was the american masters documentary and right off the bat there clearly seeing how much footage there is i thought well I can't do that because what, what's the <laughs> point? I'll never be as compelling as him. And so it was, okay, let me keep researching. Let's see if there's something here. And right off the bat, very early on, I believe it was with the Gruen tapes, which was maybe the second or third thing I lifted out of that huge room, are these tapes from this book that he made called The Private World of Leonard Bernstein, 1968. And most of that came from a trip to Italy, to Ancedonia, Italy, that he and his family, Jane Gruen and their their daughter, went on vacation with the Bernsteins soon after his trip to Israel in 1967, right before he was coming back to tell New York City that he was leaving as music director of the New York Philharmonic. So it was a very transitional time. He was turning 50 years old. And so there were the, this three months or month, two months in the summer where he would record all these interviews and time he was spending with the family. So we, I had access to all of that. And in there, I think, was the genesis, hearing the musicality, the dynamic of their voices together, how articulate they all were, the children included in, in expressing themselves, how unique the melody of their voices are, how funny they were, how biting. I, I just found it intoxicating. And I found family in this way, something that I was moving towards, I wanted to be a part of, I couldn't get away from this family. I was so excited to wake up in the morning, and get back into doing research, which as you know, can be just, you know, monotonous. Mm -hmm. So the fact that all of this research was highly inspiring was a sign that maybe this is what's worth exploring, this relationship between these two, because that's what I kept leaning towards and getting exciting about reading and looking and talking to the children, Nina and Jamie and Alex. and. And then the more I talked to them, the more I spent time with them, went up to Fairfield. Oh my gosh, this house is amazing. Then I start writing to this house and now now this house becomes a character. And they start showing us home videos and letters and even letters that we didn't see in the in the, in those that huge book of letters and what's at the Library of Congress. And so it was just it just became this treasure trove of information about these two, Felicia and Lenny. And so as I said in the beginning, it's almost like I was just waiting and they chose us and the story mm -hmm. chose us. That's what it felt like. I was just sort of like a pioneer or something, or like a traveler, you know, coming across this land is how it felt. Before Josh and I wrote a script, I asked Carrie to come along. So yeah, so she was part of us, you know, with our machete hacking through this jungle. 
you couldn't have had a better partner. But just not only as an actor, but as a professional, as a researcher, as a companion in this, in the marketing, you know, in the selling of the movie. She's just, she's so wonderful. And she's just a, a wonderful adult. <laughs> you know, she's talked about how she's never really been fully all in. And she's done extraordinary work right on the stage and in, in film. But she felt that this was a different experience. And it was interesting to hear her articulate like she was kind of embarrassed or insecure maybe about going all in. But she realized that that was just about fear, going through this process together and doing that kind of rehearsal process process of doing the dream work and really bonding. She said through that, she just became fearless. She did say that she's going to, I'm going to be working differently from now on from that experience. So I just think that's incredible. And so will I. And I would say that Lenny gave me that permission to be fearless. And then I just passed it along to everybody else that came aboard. But the first person was Lenny because Early on, I realized the only way to make this movie is as fearlessly as he lived his life and made his music. Because if not, there's there's just that I understood from the beginning. There's no way that the film can even harness or tether or encapsulate this man if it doesn't have the same muscularity and build and fuselage that he had as an entity. Mm. I don't see any Bradley in this film at all. I see Lenny, I'm living Lenny. There was no separation for me. And I know as the director, there was no separation for the cast. And part of that was a process, right? Obviously, hair and makeup and physicality. And I saw you on Broadway do Elephant Man. And I was just amazed how you were able to move your body. And that same kind of movement is in this film, like both of you, from your back, you, you age 40 years now. I think we go from 20 to 70, right? How did you do that in, in your body and then kind of flipping back to like you're directing as a 70-year-old, but you're also acting as that? I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. The only way to approach it was a section at a time and to map out each section or avenues rather, because it felt like these avenues that we would travel down. There was the musical avenue, which was how do I get to a point where I feel like I believe I can conduct and can conduct certain pieces of music that we will record live. How do I get from to that place when we're shooting? How do I be able to speak like he did or believe I ha I am him through my voice from age 25 to 67 and marking that shift and that transition and that aging, having the primary source material, audio recordings of learning just how, how much his voice changed. So, okay, the work I have to do to create these, inhabit these voices. And then the fact, and this all came from this relationship between Felicia and Lenny, that it had to be over these five decades, knowing that I'm going to have to age. So that's when the prosthetic conversation even occurred to me was, oh, I'm going to have to age myself. I don't want to do it digitally. I haven't seen it done digitally where I believe it. Kazuhiro is, and I had done another test with another artist and I, and I didn't believe it. And I wasn't going to do it at all if I didn't believe it. I was going to figure out another way to tell the story. But I thought, I'm four years out. Let me contact Kazu through Guillermo del Toro because we were doing Nightmare Alley. He said, you know, he's the best. And I thought, I don't think he'd be interested, but he gave me his number. I reached out. Turns out Kazu was very interested and we met and it was like love at first sight. And we just started right away and we started talking about what it would be. And we were both limitless in our exploration. So we went full Lenny 
I didn't believe it. It was too much. And then we just kept paring down. We found this middle ground between me and Lenny through the ages. And we just kept testing it and changing the type of material. So it was thinner and thinner and thinner. So we would believe it more and more. And I could move more and more. And I was losing weight because if I lost weight, it'd be better. You know, just finding all of that and spending years doing it. And then there's the writing of it and sort of figuring out the cinema of it, which also helps inform where I'm going to go as Lenny, I guess is the best way to describe it. I feel like in writing it, I'm I'm actually living it too. It's part of the process of creating Lenny. So all those avenues being explored simultaneously, but you know, sectioned out time-wise, finally led to a place where four years later, maybe four months before shooting, I felt like Lenny was banked and he was there. And then I could relax just a little bit knowing that he's there. And that really comes down to the voice. You know, the voice is the key. I started working with Tim Monick on American Sniper. And that was when I really realized if you put the time in and you, it's not an accent, it's you're changing your voice. So you're thinking and speaking all in that voice. And the same thing with The Star is Born, same thing with The Nightmare Alley, and then with this movie. This movie just took a lot longer because it was so much harder. And he was a real person. I have this real material, and he has a very melodic way of speaking that's very specific. But then again, it wasn't about imitating him. It was about finding a way to have him be infused into me, yet it's still me, and finding this sort of common ground. Same thing with Chris Kyle. It wasn't like an imitation of Chris Kyle. It was enough of emerging that I at least believed I was this character and his name was Chris Kyle. Same thing as I believed I was this character and his name is Leonard Bernstein. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You also admitted that at one point early on, you knew you were going to have to conduct and you wanted to make sure, and I thought this was very funny and very humbling, like you wanted to make sure you weren't an SNL skit doing it. You, yeah. <laughs> you had to be believable. But truthfully, because what's the point? Yeah, the whole movie wouldn't work if you, we got to that scene yeah. and it just looks ridiculous. Right. So you worked on that to be able to conduct. So the scene in the cathedral with the resurrection, it's one of the yeah. most... It's just one of the most beautiful. There's several in this film. How was that for you when you finally got to the knowing that you're going to have to do this six and a half minutes, six minutes and 23 seconds, I think, if, if I'm fact checking, of one shot of you conducting the whole time? I mean, how did that feel as just that accomplishment when you knew you had it after six relief, years utter, of prep? Utter, utter relief, finally. <laughs> it, was, that, it was a final take, final setup. I messed up the rest. And so it was a relief and calm. That's really what I felt because I knew that this, you know, like other things I've experienced, I remember when I was training for American Sniper, you know, when he's behind that gun, if you don't believe it, if I don't believe it, it's, the whole movie's not going to work. And it was the same thing with The Star is Born. Like I had to really sing and we had to record it live. And with this, this was it. This was one of those things where if you, if I can't actually do it and record it and us understand the power and the higher level of existence that occurs when you create with that music with a group of musicians, what, what occurs in those environments, in those halls that I witnessed for four years going to the New York Phil rehearsals and performances and the LA Phil and Philadelphia Orchestra and the Berlin Philharmonic. I mean, I just immersed myself and really understood the nuclear power of this music. It was just clear that we had to capture that in film so that the audience understands the story, which is why she is so attached and gripped towards this man, despite everything, and why so many people talk about him in, in the way that they do. His unique ability to harness and to be a medium 
for this music to go through him and then out to us. And that all was encompassed in that six and a half minute piece, which is the only time you see him conduct in the the movie, really. You know, you see mm -hmm. him do a rehearsal, you see him do one note, downbeat rest, but that's that's it. We saved the shark for that moment. I mean, you can imagine pitching to a studio and then there'll be a six and a half minute <laughs> scene with very little cutting away from of a guy conducting classical music. You know, it's pretty crazy, you know, uh, not to mention like in half the movie is going to be in black and white film stock, by the way, we won't be able to go back. <laughs> it is. It's like fearlessness. But that scene, and then when he goes over to her and you realize, like, he became her art. You know, she was the actress, but he became... It just was such yeah. a Yeah. I mean, Steven Spielberg said that, like, an offhanded comment early on, which, like, floored me. I think we were... It was early on. I think he came to Disney Hall when I was testing that SNL idea. <laughs> and it was during COVID, and Disney Hall and Gustavo Dudamel were kind enough to let us use that space. And we went in there, and, I, and we... So Kazu, we, we went all through all the looks and I had his recording from Ely Cathedral and I just played it through the PA system with in an empty hall standing on a podium wearing a tuxedo with a baton. And Paul Thomas Anderson was kind enough to come in because we were doing licorice pizza at the time or just before that or we were going to because clearly I didn't have a beard then. And he came in, and Mango and I think Scott Sakamoto and a couple of the crew came and we just did it together. And just to see if what it would look like. And I'm pretty sure Stephen was there then. He came by one of the days and he just said, you know, because I was starting to write the script and he, I think I had written 60 pages and it was clearly going to be just about the two of them, which I know wasn't an easy thing for everybody to digest originally. And he just said, he was her art. Mm. And I was like, oh... Mm -hmm. which you just said, mm -hmm. which is just so true. She, she she chose her art to be him. That scene, you run over there, and when you go to embrace her, you realize they had this shared passion, this shared love that you just like never, that we've never seen on screen before. One of the images always start to unveil themselves, and one image was this sort of idea of um, somebody suffocating somebody else with their body. Mm. I kept thinking about him like sort of collapsing onto her all the time. So in many moments in that movie, cinematically at least exploring that even though it is deeply intimate, he is like encroaching on the lens, you know, in the composition and onto her. He does it uh, when he comes off stage, you know, choking her. She's just like, it's her head. He takes over the frame, even when she's dying. But yet the movie has the light in her face. He is enraptured around her. And then also when she gets the diagnosis, he turns around and does the same thing. And then also there at Ely Cathedral, you know, he's just too much, you know? Mm -hmm. And even when he leaves her, I love that his sweat is on mm -hmm. that beautiful oh. blue dress, you know, and he's left his mark. And she, and to me, I don't know how Carrie did this, but it looked like he took half of her soul with him when he left the frame. And she's just there. And you're like, oh, yeah, he's sucking the life out of her. Mm -hmm. By mm -hmm. the way. I think she knows it and she's like, I'm in. She's in. Yeah, no. <laughs> but, you know, that's yeah. the thing. She's, she's like, like, I'm good. <laughs> and I love this life we've created and yeah. I'm in. I'm, you know? I'm, I'm still in. Yeah. I'm still in. It's just that one moment which makes it so devastating when, you know, he reaches over and grabs the hand of Tommy. Yeah. Right. Then it becomes, it's just like a gut punch because you realize, oh, something has shifted. It's like, now yeah. is that And that's the, the straw that broke the yeah. camel's back. Yeah. He's brought him into their idyllic world that they created in Fairfield. And then he's asking her to be friends with him. Mm -hmm. 
And then he's he's at rehearsal and he's commiserating with him about artistic endeavors. This is not what she thought the deal was at mm. all. I want to talk about something when you said when you were writing, you know, 60 pages in for the script, because the scene in the Dakota on Thanksgiving, obviously one take, you know, shot almost from the point of view like a kid peeking in the window watching their parents fight, right? No yes. coverage shots, no like reaction, no. nothing. Something we've never seen before, right? Like of that kind of fight scene, the pinnacle point in the movie and when you first hear her just that cutting line of like you're gonna end up a lonely old queen it just lands yeah. like a bomb were you directing as you were writing did you know that that's what those scenes would look like when you were writing always. the script i do this exercise always throughout the process when i start writing which is to see how far i can get watching the movie in my head shot for shot I tried to play it even though I was tired this time. I, I would always try to do it every night before I would go to bed, even on shooting days. How far can I get? So at least I had a template. I had a foundation. Now, if I get to set and there's something or an actor or something, and I'm always thinking and talking to people, and if there's a better idea, I'll pivot. But only pivot if I can then see the rest of the movie and how that affects everything. So yes, I mean, the reason why to me at least structurally, the Thanksgiving scene could be shot that way is because we get the close-ups later in his confession and her confession. That's the relationship cinematically. Everything is all together. Not one piece stands alone, like music, like a symphony, which it always was going to be. It was always going to be threads laid out musically that then become one musical element at the end. Mm -hmm. Well, even the way you brought in West Side Story, I mean, it's brilliant. Again, to story, you know, it was yeah. this idea of him feeling like it was an albatross, this thing that followed him. So the movie has fun with it, you know, when Gruen says, then there's West Side Story and is oh, Jesus Christ. And then so we treated Symphonic Dances, which is the prologue, which really isn't even West Side Story. It's a separate piece, but it has all of the sort of greatest hits moments. You have this turf war at Fairfield. You know, where she's Bernardo at the top of the stairs. We're shooting through the chain link fence of the urban environment, yet the sustained glass. The other gang's coming out, but it's just children coming yeah. out of the pool. You know, it was a lot of fun. The car, you know, the way they're even the mod look that they have, oh, yeah. you know. Yeah. And that's what was great about working with people like Mark Bridges and Kevin Thompson. I was able to talk about these things early on. And it really did help that they were clear in my head so we could all plan accordingly. Those little Easter egg moments are so impactful. And it, it tells the story of him without having to say, this is, you know, which That's I, right. I exactly. loved about it. Great. Yeah, that was exactly the point. Let's not shortchange at all his uh, musical achievements, mm. but let's weave it into the story. Mm -hmm. You mentioned this back a little bit about, you know, convincing a studio to do a six minute scene and then obviously have the first half in black and white. But I haven't gotten a chance to talk to you about that seamless transition from black and white to color. Their relationship is going to take us through all these time periods because that's the whole reason why we're exploring these time periods is through the evolution of their relationship. And what better way than to make a huge leap and go from the idyllic to the more reckoning realism of color to be with Felicia? Because she's the one that's having to deal with the reality of these nuptials that were made mm -hmm. in that idyllic time. And there was a whole section of the movie written to take place in Italy during that vacation that I abandoned just before shooting because I realized that I could do it all without that. And in fact, it was a framing device that was written out of fear in same way that I was, I had set up shots and two scenes out of fear. And like I said about Lenny sort of calling me, the movie starts to tell you exactly what it wants. 
And I started to realize, like, you know what? Italy is never going to make it through the movie, number one, and there's no reason to shoot it. But the transition uh, was her looking out at the sea, and it was this sort of window-like thing that I'd found on location that was then going to be the transition to color. Hmm. And I then found that at the Dakota. So that same proscenium was always that black white then over her back. It's interesting, an idea and image evolves how it works its way through the changing of locations or scripts, but yet yet the idea stays the same. And and in fact, I did this sort of proof of concept. We put a lot of things on film and I edited it together just to see how it would look. And it was always that same thing of her looking at us with the cigarette, you know, and it mm -hmm. said maestro over it. So it lasted all the way through for years. Mm. Carrie did say that the sets, it felt like one giant family. Everyone had a place at the table. Everyone, there was no hierarchy. Everyone was in it together. And I love even your daughter has a little cameo in it, kind of. Is that something that you're going to take with you to every film that you do? Oh, yeah. I mean, that is a prerequisite for creativity. The blessing of being an actor for so many years and then and being on so many different types of sets is you really learn what is the best way for a group of people to create together and work together and what's the most productive what's the safest what's the most joyous and all those things pointing in the direction of safe joyous inclusion yields the most creative that's my experience so not only do you get just sort of the benefit of treating people you know the way you would want to be treated but you're also getting the best product out of it which is which makes sense it's logical i'm going to show you my soul if i feel safe enough to show it i'm going to tell you my thoughts and points of view about this thing that i'm working so hard at if i feel like there's a space for me to risk telling you my opinion and all of those things are essential for a collaborative art form which is cinema a bunch of actors went to see your film in the theater and they're going to remain nameless. They all were very inspired and felt like, fuck, we're not working hard enough. Look at what he did. Look at oh, what's wow. capable of. That's awesome. Because I know I've thought that many times watching movies. So that's to be a part of that lineage would be incredible. Well, you are part of that lineage, Bradley. All right. So you've worked with a lot of auteurs in your time. David O. Russell, Todd Phillips, Clint Eastwood. PTA, Paul Thomas Anderson, Guillermo del Toro. What did you take from each one of them? Is there something that you can, and even J.J. Abrams. I mean, I remember when, you know, Alias. You were always passionate from Jump about learning every aspect of what you were doing. Going to see dailies, even when you're not working, going to set, seeing how, the, how it all functioned. But what did you specifically get from each of them? I would say all of them, yes. And also David Wayne and Wet Hot David, American yeah. Summer. And even Ken Olin on Alias was very, oh, he was one of the directors, sort of showrunner directors, J.J. and Ken Olin. And even John Wells working on Burnt and Limitless, uh, Neil Berger. Everybody that I've worked with, Ruhei Kitamura, I learned a lot from doing Midnight Meat Train. <laughs> you know, like Joe Carnahan on 18. Mm -hmm. Each person that I've worked with, I've taken as much as I can from everything that they've done. I love it so much that I'm just, I don't leave the set. I'm there all the time out of just sheer joy of learning. And so everybody, everything, every movie I've watched, it's all just sort of funneled into my brain and into my soul. Specifically, 
I think I was just balled over by JJ's talent, quite honestly, when I was like 26. And I couldn't even really fathom what he was doing. I mean, he was like editing, scoring, and making sculptures while he was doing it, an alias. He was like an alien to me. He did allow me to spend time in the editing rooms, and I got everybody's dailies, and I would watch them, and they were VHS tapes back then. But he was like something that seemed like from another world to me, his talent, level of talent. Todd Phillips was just the coolest guy I'd ever met. <laughs> and I think old school was when I realized he was an auteur, actually, it was old school. If you look at those compositions, it's pretty high level filmmaking, actually. And just his command over what he wanted, I thought, and his command over how he writes and how specific and, and then his, his ability to weave music into movies. I remember feeling like, wow, really balled over by. David O. Russell, it was really his writing and his ability to be so unorthodox in the way that he was feeling. He really opened my brain up to like, oh, there isn't one way to make a movie. And Silver Linings Playbook, you know, and being able to, being so free to change on a dime. And I also learned that like, you you know, you can talk over each other and make it work in the editing room. You know, mm -hmm. that was the first time I learned like, oh, you can, the way normal people talk, you can film that and it can be, and it can live in a movie. That was the first time I learned it for sure. And also, I remember on Silver Lining's playbook, realizing how hard everybody was working. And I remember while I was, I thought, oh, this felt a little different. I was like, oh, this feels like, I don't know. There was something where I was like, oh, this is what it takes to make something like potentially transcendent. I remember thinking that. Clint Eastwood, I learned a lot from. I think I learned the most of what felt natural to the way I would, if I were ever going to direct, would direct. I love how uh, at ease he, everybody is, how calm and quiet the set is. He never says action or cut. He shoots the rehearsal. He's a jazz musician, and mm -hmm. that's the way it feels. And I was like, this is, I'm in love with, with this process. And only looking for truth. And never get in front of the story. Never let your cinematic ideas do anything other than serve the story. Paul Thomas Anderson Thank goodness I worked with him when I had already done uh, Star is Born and I was in the middle of shooting Nightmare Alley and I knew I was going to do Maestro. So I felt confident enough as an artist that I was able to at least breathe around him. <laughs> it felt like the way that we went about shooting A Star is Born, which was really trying to keep it as small as possible, as small as possible footprint wherever we were and have the nucleus of the making of the film be right where the camera and the action is and everything else around it was quiet or not there. And that's the way that he his set was exactly. And I was like, wow, you know, that I have the same inclination as this master filmmaker. Felt very reaffirming to me. But specifically, I really learned about lenses with Paul. He allowed me to be a part because the John Peters was the first thing that they shot. That was the first week of shooting. So I was able to then, he let me tag along and prep, be along while he was prepping and looking at lenses and all these tests and everything. So I was just a fly on the wall for all of that. And then Guillermo, besides like now being a lifelong friend, growing up on Nightmare Alley, really like overcoming a lot of a lot of hurdles in many ways on that film, just in terms of the tone of what, what it meant to play Stanton Carlisle, what it was like going through COVID. I mean, it was just a dark, dark, dark time. And I don't I know I wouldn't have been able to do Maestro if I hadn't done Stanton Carlisle, that's for sure. But specifically, it was his use of the technocrane and how he includes the technocrane in very intimate moments. And I really learned from that and took that with me wholeheartedly into Maestro. Ah, oh, it's so great. 
Bradley, how settled are you feeling as like an artist right now at this point in your career? What do you want to explore next? In many ways, I feel like I'm just getting started. And in other ways, I feel like maybe that's a wrap. <laughs> it's like, it's sort of both, you know, you never know when it's going to come, but something came months ago, and but it's another massive sort of terrifying thing personally to explore. So there is something that's a burning thing that would take years to do that I'm going to pursue. I do still feel I have a point of view about certain things to explore. And if people are willing to come aboard and explore with me, yeah, that's what I really feel like I'm supposed to do. The last question, which I ask everybody for this season, was what's your favorite way to fill your downtime when you're not working? Where would we find Bradley? You know, I don't consider parenting downtime, right? right. Uh, but I would say like, you know, so, you know, parenting is the time. I guess like the thing that came to mind is like, we call it nerdling. I'm on a thread of like octurtle, quirtle, and wordle. <laughs> and oh. I guess that would be considered downtime doing with a group of dads from my daughter's nursery school that we've all stayed dear friends. And in fact, the Burks who are, you know, in the script, I don't know how the Burks do it, three children, and they are in the movie. They are the people that are there at Fairfield. Mm -hmm. The dad, Matt Burke, is one of the people on the nerdle thread. <laughs> so yeah, so I do that. Cooking, huge, love cooking. Massive thing, cooking. Yeah, I'd say cooking is a wonderful, and I meditate, that's a big, big thing. Big. Mm. Mm. Are you good at Wordle? You'd have to ask the thread. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible. <laughs> Oh, well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for making the time. I really, really appreciate it. I'm truly grateful. I'm really just grateful for this film, Maestro. Thank you, Krista. Thanks a lot. Maestro is streaming now on Netflix. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Krista Smith, your host and creator of the show. Skip Intro is produced and edited by Isabel Arricchio and engineered by Dave Corwin. Special thanks to our coordinator, Alyssa Hillman. Please subscribe, rate, and review Skip Intro wherever you've been listening. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Krista Smith. If you enjoy the podcast, please go to NetflixQ.com for more. That's NetflixQueUE.com. -E